0: And this is, in the essence of it, namely in the words, Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. The first of five great sayings or statements that Paul pens to his sons In the faith Timothy and Titus there are two others in first Timothy there is one in second Timothy and one in Titus and I wish we had time today to look at all of them and to note the common strains that run throughout but we don't we're going to consider this first one but I would encourage you at your leisure perhaps even this week in your devotional studies to look up the other four and to do a content analysis of them and to ask the Holy Spirit to apply them to your hearts as he is pleased to do so. Well, we're going to look at this first one, and I'm suggesting to you that it is what we might call real reality. You remember years ago when Dr. Francis Schaeffer spoke of the need of true truth? Or once Dr. Vance Havner, the late Southern Baptist evangelist, called for a greater number of what he termed Christian Christians. I think we can get a little innovative with the English language when we need to when it comes to a revisitation of the axiomatic truth that is essential for the living of these days. We have come through difficult times and are still in the midst of them. And we have watched the world grovel for what is real and to look for it to the right and to the left, and to all manner of foolishness. And what Paul is doing for Timothy, as he wishes to send him out in pastoral ministry, equipped for every good work to which the Lord would call him, I believe for us as well, as we come to this reality that is in these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that we too will be reoriented to the undeniable. And the axiomatic, and the utterly actual. And we will again find comfort for our souls and sanity as we look at the foolishness that swirls round about us continually in this fallen world. I've titled today's message Getting Real. A statement we must all believe or more particularly a biblical reality check the saying of Paul that must be fully accepted by all now I'm going to read beginning at verse 12 and continuing through verse 17 to give us something of the context and then we will dive in to verse 15 and the way in which Paul presents The reality and I have four points that stem from that he writes beginning in 1st Timothy 1 verse 12 I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor an insolent opponent but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in christ jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am foremost but i received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost jesus christ might display his perfect patience As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only God be honor and glory forever and ever amen and God's word before all times firmly stood and shall from age to age endure. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we are grateful that you have not left us in darkness concerning yourself nor ourselves but that you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us and to make known to us those duties that you require of us namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that as we consider your words written by Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that are before us that you would impress them deeply upon our hearts and may we not merely be passive hearers but may we go rejoicing in thy favor and be effectual doers for we ask it in Jesus name and for his glory amen now the first thing that I want us to note here as we look at verse 15 in the first words in the verse are the confidence that this great reality affords. We have to consider something of why Paul is writing to Timothy. As I said, he wants to encourage him in his ministry. He's still relatively young. This is the same Paul who, three chapters later would exhort him to let no one despise his youth or look down upon him because he is young. He knows what Timothy is going to be facing in the Roman world at that time and he understands it will be difficult and I believe that he wants to give to him something that will keep him going in ministry he wants to objectively encourage him by the very gospel that God has used to save him and that he will be proclaiming and so he gives it to him in the form of a saying that is trustworthy the words here are literally pistos ha logos we can translate Uh, the word logos here as a saying because in that culture, much as in our day, we like slogans, mottos, and and, and so did they. The affinity for the soundbite was not something that came about in the 1970s. The constituent nature of man is such that even in Paul and Timothy's day, people liked the pithy saying, we have ours, Your best life now, be all you can be, I've got this, you're the man. I mean, take inventory of our daily language in our culture and we are shot through with sayings. There were sayings around Ephesus. There were sayings all over the world at that time and Paul knew this and he knew that Timothy would hear them. And they would be vacuous and therefore of no use to him. And so he wants to give him another saying that packs a punch. That is trustworthy, is truly and utterly faithful. This is a true faithful word or word of faith. To use vernacular of the day, these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Timothy, they will never cheat on you. And we know the world needs that, but don't we need it as well on a daily basis as we face the freneticism and the craziness around us? It's a life motto, an oral communication. What's known in Greek grammar is a verbal adjective meaning sure we can stand here upon the faithful reality of Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners and know that it is immovable ground. That's the objective reality, but I suggest to you that there is a subjective element in this as well by virtue of the one making the great statement. This is Paul. This is a man who was a bad guy once upon a time, Saul of Tarsus. You notice in verse 13 what he says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. I arrogantly came against the budding Christian church. And yet he received grace. And so you see, Timothy can be encouraged not only because of the objective dimensions of the gospel, but precisely because he is being reminded of this by one who was a far off from God and was really wicked and God got him. John Calvin says that Paul is here showing that it was profitable for the church that he had been the kind of man that he was before he was called to the apostleship. For by giving in Paul a pledge of his grace, Christ has called all sinners to a sure expectation of obtaining forgiveness. Be encouraged, Timothy, because God has saved you and He's going to save others through the saying, and I know because I was afar off and I have been brought near by the blood of this Messiah that we declare. How wonderful it is when you think of Charles Wesley's words, "'Tis mercy all, immense and free," for lo, my God had found out me. And I've been in ministry long enough now to take an inventory of those shocking and surprising and unexpected conversions. Living in Los Angeles, I've had the privilege of having gotten to know some public figures. I think of the late actor and comedian Orson Bean who lived a lascivious life and God changed him and he came forth for the last 25 or 30 years of his life with a profound testimony. I think of Raquel Welch who was a member of one of our churches in the presbytery who'd been raised in a covenant home and had gone away from the Lord and just 15 or so years ago God in his providence brought her into Calvary Presbyterian Church in Glendale, and she said in the afterword of her autobiography in 2010, I prayed to the child, the God of my childhood. And behold, he was still there. Oretta Linnemann, the German Buchmannian scholar. Rudolf Bultmann's number one student whose career was given to trying to disprove the historicity of the Gospels. Because of a group of students at the University of Zurich who had been lifting her up in prayer, she said that one night in 1978 she was sitting in her study, And she realized as the Holy Spirit convicted her that the Jesus that she had been attempting for all of her adult life to disprove had gone to the cross and had died for her. And she repented of her sins and trusted in him and spent the rest of her days serving him and did something academics never do. She encouraged everyone who had copies of her dissertation or any of the books she had written in their position to burn them. And you say, well, that doesn't happen. But it does. And that's what we see here in the subjective dimension of this glorious reality that affords us great confidence because God is still at work bringing those who are dead in transgressions and sin to Him and covering them with the righteousness of His Son, and making them His own. And so we need this great Pauline reality. Here in these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I'm foremost. We need these words that can be trusted because they are ever faithful, and they are real, and they are changeless, and they afford us great confidence in our own lives. Well, secondly, we find the belief the reality merits. The belief the reality merits. Look at the second phrase in verse 15 and deserving of full acceptance. Not only is this a reliable saying, but it's one that merits belief. That is, it deserves to be leaned upon. It is worthy of full acceptance to be received by grace through faith. It is trustworthy, and therefore it earns the right to be fully accepted or trusted. Now, this is a two sided coin. Because as you look at these words, one question does arise. We ask ourselves the question, is Paul talking here about the degree of acceptance, or is he speaking of the prevalence of acceptance? In other words, is he telling us that we ought to latch on to this lock, stock, and barrel, leaving nothing out or adding nothing to it, Or does he mean that this work of Christ, this reality that he comes to save sinners, is so great that it deserves, it merits being believed on by the entire world and every last creature who was created? And the answer is yes. It's like my friend who was once asked if he preferred blondes or brunettes, and he said yes. Yes. It's both and I'd like for us to take a moment to look at both sides of this coin first of all Paul is teaching us here with this glorious reality that it deserves full acceptance by anyone who would dare lay hold of it we are to trust it it is to be embraced such that the soul is left with a lack of dependence in whole or even in part upon anything else This saying is to be the only thing to which one clings for salvation. This amazing fact is to be the only thing that we seek refuge for our souls in, because this truth alone is worthy. Christ has merited our acceptance by God, and therefore we must accept only this, exclusively this, for our salvation, because no one or thing other than him can merit the attention and the affections and the trust of our spirits. We take it as is, which means we do not fall short of anything that it has to offer, nor do we add anything to it, thereby subtracting from its very essence and its salvific power. To accept fully means to trust and receive this reality that Christ has come into the world to save sinners as is. I love the story that Dr. Robert Godfrey, the great church historian and former president of Westminster Seminary in California, used to tell about the evenings that he and his wife enjoyed sitting and listening to their son, who was an accomplished pianist, Play in the other room and he had mastered many of the classics and Dr. and Mrs. Godfrey delighted in him playing all of those and he said sometimes he'll slip and make a mistake and will wince a little bit and it'll deduct something from the pleasure of the experience But sometimes he's actually playing very well and he'll begin to feel his oats and he'll get fancy with it. He'll begin to add to Bach or Beethoven. He'll put a grace note there, add a couple of arpeggios over here. But he said that too causes us a lack of the pleasure we would normally take in those pieces because they're not what was written. And he pulled his son aside one night and said, don't don't add. For it to be music to our ears, you've got to play it like it's written. And that's what Paul is saying here in the first dimension of what we mean by full acceptance. The ultimate enjoyment of the soul is found in the full acceptance, taking it as is with no subtractions or additions. And then there's the other side of the coin, of course, that I wish to point out. Because we don't often think of this, and I think this is important for our own spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. There is acceptability fully, exclusively by any soul without rival of this saying, complete dependence upon it. And then there is the matter of whole-scale acceptability. In other words, Paul is not only teaching us that this saying should be wholly leaned upon by the individual soul, he is saying that this reality of Christ Jesus having come into the world to save sinners is so great that it merits, that it deserves being believed upon by the whole world this is what the dutch new testament scholar dr william hendrickson calls universal personal appropriation will everyone believe no should everyone believe yes this is why paul says in philippians 2 verse 10 that at that name that god has given jesus the name above every name every knee should bow you see it deserves everyone's belief this is why on that day even those who have not placed their faith in Jesus will bow and will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father you bow in this life or you bow in the next when it regrettably is too late do you ever stop to think about your salvation having this value? I don't think we do. This is why I'm so convicted uh, when I hear presentations such as our brother, Reverend Shepherd gave in Sunday school this morning to give your life to go to the remote regions of the world. Why do you do that? Because you know people need to fully accept the saying, but you also know that it is valued at. Its appraisal is such that all men everywhere should embrace it. That's what ought to compel us to go and to find the elect. Knowing that from Earth's remotest regions will come those he has set his affections upon from all eternity past. We have an opportunity this morning to realize, as we look at these words, that this is the belief that this glorious reality in which we trust merits. This is what it earns, this is its value. Much as you would touch an app on your smartphone and drive in front of a home on the market. To have its value pop up on your phone. Oh, that's what that appraises at. That's what that property is worth. Even so, we see here that this is the inestimable worth of the gospel that we embrace by the grace of God. In the 1830s, There was a man named George Wilson who robbed a postal service and in the process killed a man. He was sentenced to die, and a group of his friends were able to put together a petition for clemency that was sent to then-President Andrew Jackson. And lo and behold, in 1830, later in the year, President Jackson granted a pardon to Mr. Wilson. But Mr. Wilson refused to accept the pardon. And the sheriff of the county in which he was convicted was unwilling to enact the sentence. How could he hang a man who had been pardoned? Well, the whole process went through the appellate courts and wound up at the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice John Marshall, in the majority opinion, wrote that a pardon is only good if it is agreed to by the one to whom it is offered. If it is refused it is not a pardon. Therefore, Mr. Wilson, rejecting the pardon, was hanged on the gallows of his county as a full and free pardon lay upon the desk of the sheriff in his county." We ought to be compelled, beloved, by the sad reality that on that day, there will be many hanged on the gallows of God's just judgment for their unrighteousness. And they have no covering for that unrighteousness. They have no substitute alien righteousness. And it will be so while throughout time, there lay upon the desk of God's providence a full and free pardon in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, knowing that his blood was not spilled in vain, knowing that our Lord will not return until the last of the lost sheep is engathered, may we, with commitment and resolve in our hearts in expectation of his faithfulness, Join in the words of Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 where the prophet cries out, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now may that be the call of our hearts and the issuance of our mouths as well, knowing that this saying that is foolproof, that we can bank on, is worthy of being accepted as is, but not only so, but by all who draw breath, given them by the true and living God. Don't become stodgy or the frozen chosen and forget that, but be enthusiastic about this Gospel. And in your talking and in your living and even in your thinking, may you issue the clarion call to any and all to receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save sinners. Well, thirdly, we come to the substance, the reality features. Now we're looking at the saying proper and its essence. Found in these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Literally in the Greek it reads, Christ Jesus came into the world sinners to save. And I like that because I draw great comfort from the fact that Paul names the Savior's name, Christ Jesus, and the next word is sinners. It's not Christ Jesus' counselor, though he is. It's not Christ Jesus' friend, though he is. But Paul moves immediately to the distinction that we know ought to characterize, and indeed does, Jesus the most in order for us to have passion to preach his name in all the world he came sinners to save he didn't come to be your buddy he didn't come to be a great example or he didn't come to be a great teacher he came sinners to save Paul just gets right to the point He's not so much concerned with what would Jesus do as what has Jesus done. Sinners to save. Gets right to the matter. Jesus' priority is sinners. And that's our only hope. The Anointed One commissioned to save. And He comes into the world. and That's indicative not only of a physical change that Christ has made, leaving heaven as the eternal second member, second person of the Godhead and coming as a man to earth. He's not only left heaven for the fallen world, but he has left utter bliss and infinite glory and perfection for utter imperfection. He's left the best for the worst. Have you ever complained about moving? I don't want to go there don't like that city to this to that has too much of this not enough of that whenever you're grappling with the Lord's call on your life to relocate remember that you and I in this life will never transition as he did and we will never go from heaven's glorious throne to a stable that smells (laughs) and be mistreated and sinned against as he was to the degree he was for the sins of his people. But we need to be aware that that's the transition that he made. He came from the highest of conditions and went into the lowest of conditions and endured the mockery and the scorn of the cross and death itself. And I suggest to you that this is the way in which when we think of Jesus, we ought to consider him principally, when he comes to mind, we should think sinner Savior. Not example, not any way in which we wish to think of him to fit into our context, but sinner Savior. Do you remember Jesus and do you think of him and speak of him and serve him in that light with that primary identity? You baseball fans will know that Rick Monday played for three teams over 19 seasons. He was a good player. He was not a a great player. He didn't put up Hall of Fame numbers or anything like that, but he he, uh, gave the teams for whom he played, namely the Dodgers, some pretty exciting moments over the years. For I believe 28 seasons now, he's been one of the voices of the Los Angeles Dodgers on radio. But Rick Monday is principally remembered for something that has nothing to do with baseball. On April 25th, 1976, then a member of the Chicago Cubs, he was playing in the outfield as the Cubs were visiting the Dodgers at Dodgers Stadium, and along about the fifth inning or so, a man came onto the field with his 11-year-old son and had an American flag with a box of matches and a can of lighter fluid and was about to set fire to the American flag and Mr. Monday saw this and he ran from his position in the outfield to the flag as a former marine reservist he thought to himself not on my watch and he grabbed the flag and pulled it away just as the man was about to set a flame to it and he ran out of the stadium and the crowd was cheering. This has been 45 years ago. And on most days, all anyone wants to talk to Rick Mundy about is the flag. He's been offered a million dollars for the flag. How's the flag, Mr. Mundy? Why did you do this? That is what he is principally known for. And look, look at the honor in it, having done the right thing. But we have before us in this glorious saying that is real reality, the Jesus that is all things to His people, but principally to be known and remembered as the One who came sinners to save. And that when people ask you about Jesus, or they go around the edges of things rather, blurringly, and talk about, as our brother mentioned earlier, some vague spirituality as opposed to religion. Make sure that you begin with the point of Him being the Savior, and do not leave that out and press it home. For therein is one's hope, and that is the message ultimately that God will use to transform His own, to take out hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh so that in, as he wills, countless ones will be able to join around the globe in saying what Leslie Weatherhead, the 20th century Methodist, said one night as a kind of profession as he sat in a balcony in a London theater, listening to Handel's Messiah being performed by a choir and orchestra, And they came to the end and there was a rousing rendition of that one that we all love the hallelujah chorus and they came to that great refrain you know king of kings and lord of lords king of kings and lord of lords and he shall reign forever and weatherhead turned to his companion with tears in his eyes and said that's my savior they're talking about this Beloved, is the substance that the reality principally features. But then finally, we look at these last words, and they're familiar words to us, and they're beautiful words. Paul adds, of whom I am foremost. Some translations say the worst, I prefer foremost. I actually prefer the King James version. Some of you probably memorized this as children, where Paul says, of whom I am the chief. And I think that word is most helpful to our accurate understanding of what he's saying here. Because what is a chief? A chief is the head of something. We have chiefs of federal government agencies we have chiefs of police and fire departments who are chiefs chiefs are individuals who who run things who administer something within a given entity and so what paul is saying here is not so much that he was worse than everyone else, nor that he was as bad as he could have been, but he's telling you that as chief, there was a systematization, there was an administration to his sin when he was Saul of Tarsus before he became the Apostle Paul. And I believe, friends, that he says this because he knows that Timothy, And all of us, we need to see ourselves as chiefs as well. This is not just some nice, humble statement that Paul makes, but he is confessing so as to draw a confession out of us that if we are honest in our former lives, what characterized us before we were drawn... From the deadness of our transgressions and sins is that we were the chiefs of our own depravity and its expressions in our lives we ran that show we were the boss of that we were the head of it and there were particularities to our depravity as it worked itself out And that's very essential because what Paul really does is run the gamut of unrighteousness representatively. By that I mean we think of him as the worst of the worst. The one who confessed before King Agrippa that he had been convinced he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus or as the one who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. We look at that and see him as the most wicked of the wicked, and yet he saw himself as a righteous man in a very contorted way. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew his stuff. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so he thought that in everything he did to persecute this rapidly expanding first century church, that he somehow was pleasing the God that he professed. And so you see how we have in Paul both the notoriously unrighteous and the unmistakably self-righteous, which also is no righteousness at all this is the perspective the reality creates that we come to see ourselves as he was you know he says there in the latter portion of verse 13 but i received mercy because i had acted ignorantly in unbelief he thought he was doing what would please his god but he was not and his god got his attention on the damascus road and transformed him and made him his great ambassador in the world. I wonder if we see ourselves, regardless of where we came from, or our station in life, or how we think of ourselves, as chiefs. There was a minister in England in the 19th century who had risen to prominence as a pastor at a large church. He was known to be moral. He was known to be a great oratorical preacher. He was somewhat aloof. He even had a staff living with him at his parsonage after he had come to some fame in that that area of the world. One rainy, foggy night, he was about to retire. His staff had all gone to bed, and a rapping came at the front door, and he decided to open it, and he found a little girl there crying. She was dirty, sort of a ragamuffin, sobbing, and she asked him, "'Are you Pastor So-and-So?' And he said, yes, and she said to him, well, my mommy is dying. You must come and help her get in, meaning heaven. I promised her in all of her fear and being terrified that I would come to find the best pastor of the largest church and to come help get her in. And he could tell that this girl was not from his area, and he did not wish to go with her at that late hour. It could be difficult. To say nothing of damaging to his reputation so he was reluctant but she persisted he said he didn't want to go he even gave her the name of another man who was a chaplain in what he thought would be closer to her area of the city perhaps he's probably closer he said why don't you go to him I'm sure he can help no I promised my mother that I'd find the best and the biggest to help her get in well finally he agreed and when he arrived as he had walked with the little girl several blocks in the city His worst apprehensions were affirmed when he realized that he had been guided by her right into the heart of the red light district to the side of her mother who was a dying prostitute. And this weak woman near death looked at him and said, Sir, I am dying. Do you have any words of comfort for a sinner like me? And for the first time in years the eloquent preacher was speechless at a moment in which he should have known most what to say he didn't know what to say he was not expectant of being in such a situation and as his mind wandered the only thing he could think of were the verses that his mother had taught him as a child and he began to recite John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this weak woman mustered some strength and leaned up a bit off of her bed and said, Really, does it say that? Yes, that's what it says. He said, Well, well, I don't know. You see, I'm a great sinner. You don't know what I've done. I don't think I could get in. He couldn't save me. Well, again, the prominent minister didn't know what to say. But then the words came to him from the old King James Version that he had known for years. This is a faithful saying. Worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief." And again, she perked up and she asked him, you mean to tell me the chief got in? Yes, that's what the verse says. And she said, Well, you know, if the chief got in, I think I can get in too. And she cried out to Christ to save her. And she died shortly thereafter. But that prominent minister who lived on for many years looked back the rest of his days upon that night as the night on which two chiefs got in. That is what Paul gave to Timothy by way of encouragement an immovable, and unshakable reality, a truth that will always stand. And the power of the Gospel is such that one can never ask too much, one can never be beyond, whether utterly unrighteous or fully self-righteous, which is no righteousness at all. No one can ever be beyond the reach of God, who is pleased to give to us A reliable, trustworthy saying, valued at being fully accepted by all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are all chiefs. May it be said of us that we will profess with the Apostle in verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And may we, as we rest in Jesus, to get in, may we burst forth in the same doxology that Paul does in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and may all of God's people say amen.